thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We have spent some time discussing how insufficient sleep may be harmful for cardiometabolic health. Is this the whole story? How does circadian rhythm misalignment contribute to this? Could a behavioral sleep intervention possibly improve cardiometabolic health? Dr. Chris Deppner investigates how insufficient sleep and circadian disruption contribute to the risk of metabolic disorders such as obesity and diabetes. His long-term goal is to develop sleep and circadian-based interventions that improve metabolic health. He is here today to help us better understand the relationship between insufficient sleep, circadian disruption, and cardiometabolic health. Dr. Deppner completed his PhD in human nutrition at Oregon State University, followed by postdoctoral work in sleep and circadian physiology under the guidance of Dr. Kenneth Wright at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here and chat today. So you study sleep and circadian misalignment, right? And I, and I feel like there has been more of an emphasis on circadian science over the last few years. And I'm thinking maybe since, you know, a few years ago when the circadian researchers were awarded the Nobel. Right. I think that was a definite perhaps turning point or emphasis <laughs> in the field that really sort of brought things to light for the general public because we obviously, the field, when I say we, it was the field, got a lot of uh, notoriety for for winning the Nobel Prize, which was really a great thing and has really only launched the field further. But I do think that probably has, like in the popular media, created a large focus on circadian physiology and, you know, around that same time. And since then, there's been a big sort of explosion in the popularity of time-restricted eating or extended fasting, which sort of links to that. And I think that's, uh, you know, that sort of popularity there's really taken off. And so people really, that's in the forefront of a lot of people's brains, especially folks who are focused on sort of optimizing their health. And you're talking about intermittent fasting, right? Right. Yeah. So there's a couple of terms that people throw around, intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, uh, the like fasting mimicking diets, things like that. And mm. so, uh, you know, a lot of the work in the circadian field is really focused on the circadian time that people are consuming their food. Whereas, you know, some people use the term intermittent fasting simply to mean, uh, you know, fasting for more than 24 hours or fasting for between 12 to 16 hours. There's not necessarily these precisely defined definitions of these terms, but mm. A lot of the emphasis has been on the circadian timing of food and technique from the scientific perspective. So we had started talking about cardiovascular morbidity, and we kind of started talking about how insufficient sleep impacts cardiovascular morbidity. So tell me a little bit more about this. Let's let's level set what this is. Right. So there's a lot of data from epidemiological cross-sectional longitudinal studies that show people who are reporting getting short sleep duration. So typically that's going to be less than the seven hours of sleep per night that's recommended. Those people tend to be at higher risk for things like cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, even developing obesity, compared to people who report getting more than seven hours of sleep per night. So we tend to call that adequate sleep. 
And so there's that epidemiological data that shows, you know, that risk profile exists. And then really back in 1999, Dr. Ed Van Cotter out of University of Chicago did a really cool study where she took healthy young adults and restricted their sleep to four hours per night in the lab for six nights, I think. And she measured insulin sensitivity, so uh, a really robust marker for risk of type 2 diabetes. And she found that that sleep restriction in the lab for just six days increased or impaired insulin sensitivity. And so we know that over the long term, that would increase people's risk for type 2 diabetes. And since then, so that was 1999. Since then, many other studies in the laboratory have uh, imposed experimental sleep restriction and found similar things, that sleep restriction seems to uh, you know, increase food intake or result in increased food intake. It alters the timing of food intake, so people tend to be eating a lot more food late at night. It impairs insulin sensitivity. And so we know that over the long term, these, these sort of behavioral changes are associated or can increase people's risk for things like cardiometabolic disease. And so there's really been a lot of interest in how sleep restriction or short sleep duration is causing these adverse health consequences. So are they eating more in the evening because they are not sleeping? Like they have delayed their sleep phase and so they kind of have more time than that they fill with food? Right. So definitely these laboratory trials the sleep restriction tends to be down to like four hours or five hours time in bed, which means there's a lot of extended wakefulness happening, you know, four to five hours per day that these people are now being awake in the lab and they're living in the lab 24 hours per day. So they do have to fill their time with something. And <laughs> so that's you know, one of the thoughts there is that in the lab, these people might be eating more simply because they have more time to eat and they're kind of bored uh. and they're not getting enough sleep. And just the simple act of eating, like you're doing something, that might actually help them stay awake. Uh, so, oh. so that's definitely one possibility. And okay. yeah, so yeah, we think about how that might translate to the real world where people might not be getting enough sleep because they're doing other stuff. You know, they might be watching TV, they might just be really busy, and food might not just be sitting there on the counter next to them. And so there is some question if the, these data from the lab do translate to sort of the free living environment because, you know, obviously free living adults are not confined to like a 12 by 12 foot square room 24 hours per day where their sleep is being restricted. So, so okay, that, that, is, sounds, that yeah. sounds terrible. Four hours a night for six <laughs> in a tiny little room. That sounds terrible. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, tough, it's a tough protocol. Uh, there's, there's a lot of control going on, you know, these, these studies in the lab, not only so we're controlling their sleep very precisely, like down to the second, uh, the time of day that everything else is happening is really rigidly controlled. So if there's like blood sampling going on, that's happening at precise timing. If they're allowed to like get up and walk around the room at all, that's usually controlled. So there's, there's definitely a lot of rigid control, which it's good. So we know like we're really trying to change the physiology, but translating into the real world is a real challenge. So how do you know if then, okay, so you're restricting their time to sleep, right? By letting them stay up later. So are you kind of creating a circadian misalignment? Yes. So in a handful of studies that uh, we've done at the University of Colorado back when I was there, and a couple of other groups have done now too, when we do these sleep restriction protocols in the lab and keep people awake, we're typically keeping them awake in typical room lighting. So that's going to be like two to 300 blocks 
And mm -hmm. one lux is like one candle about one meter from your eyes. So two to 300, I mean, it's not super bright light, but it's your typical room lighting. And so they are awake in that level of lighting. And we would guess that that level of lighting could shift around someone's circadian clock. And indeed, when we measured that in one of our studies, we found that by simply inducing this sort of experimental sleep restriction, we were also delaying people's central circadian clock by about two to three hours per night. So we are huh. inducing a level of circadian misalignment as well. So are there two signals then? Is there like an insufficient sleep signal and a circadian misalignment signal? Like, how do you tell? That's that's a great question. It's It's really hard to disentangle that unless you design a study specifically for that. And so in our sleep restriction protocols is what we see is that sort of the magnitude of some of these adverse metabolic consequences is strongly associated with the the change in that central circadian clock or that magnitude huh. of circadian misalignment. So it seems like probably both the insufficient sleep and the circadian misalignment are contributing factors to these sort of adverse cardiometabolic health outcomes. Uh, you know, and so that's probably occurring in the real world too, though, because people are typically, if they're getting short sleep duration, they're not staying awake in complete darkness, they're getting room lighting. So, you know, experimentally, we can try to disentangle these, which might be really important for designing interventions. But we should also acknowledge that in the real world, there's probably short sleep duration and circadian misalignment happening at the mm. same time. So what is the ultimate goal then? You, you would kind of shared about wanting to have a behavioral intervention to improve cardiometabolic outcomes. So what does that look like? What does that mean? I think ultimately at the end of the day, it would be something, some type of an intervention that we can implement at like a community or population level that's feasible and sustainable that, you know, if we're targeting people who are habitually getting short sleep duration, whatever this intervention is, it would huh. improve their cardiometabolic sort of health risk profile. So ultimately, it would mitigate that risk of cardiometabolic disease that's due to their short sleep duration. That is very cool. Yeah, it would be super cool. I think we're, we're a ways off from <laughs> actually, actually like achieving that reality. But um, I, I think us and the field is we're, we're making good progress. Okay, so help me understand this. I'm not a researcher. I am just a clinician. So when you talk about sleep extension, is this kind of like what Dr. Karskadden talked about with like, like 14, 16 hours of sleep opportunity? Or what do you mean? So right now, there's a handful of groups. I'm doing some studies and we're kind of term terming this intervention, sleep extension. Uh, there, there's a handful of other groups around the country and really around the world that are doing these sleep extension interventions. And so it is important, like if we go back historically, Dr. Mary Karskadden, when she was back at Stanford working with Bill DeMent, they did some sleep extension studies where they took otherwise healthy participants into the lab and they had them sleep sometimes in the lab up to 30, 40 days. So, you know, a little over a month. Oh, wow. And they were providing them 14 to 16 hours time in bed and kind of observing what was happening with their levels of sleepiness, their sleep duration, uh, things like their performance or, you know, sleep onset latency on the multiple sleep latency test. And they did observe kind of over the first two weeks, there was sort of, a, you know, these people, even though they were getting seven to eight hours of sleep outside, 
they were coming in with some level of sleep debt because they did have more sleep duration. And ultimately, they, people tend, you know, in, in these studies, they tend to settle around like eight on average, maybe just over eight hours of sleep per night. And they show like uh, improved performance on the multiple sleep latency test over time. So it would suggest that, you know, if you do that type of sleep extension, like getting people to sleep as much as they possibly can, there might be a little bit of sleep debt that's relieved by that. And on the flip side, we've also sort of been using the term sleep extension to describe interventions where we're trying to help people who are getting insufficient sleep so that, you know, less than seven hours per night. In the real world, we're trying to help them get up to that seven hours per night mm. as an intervention. So it's really a very different paradigm. And uh, the, the term sleep extension has been used to describe both. So when you talk about then uh, an intervention, would this be like you go and you see your doctor and they check your blood pressure and they check your lipids and then they say, hey, you really need to get seven hours of sleep. Is it like that sort of thing or is it more prescriptive? Is it based on wearables? Like, how do you figure that out? Right. So I think you're, you're getting at really great questions like, you know, maybe who would this intervention apply to and how could we identify those people? And that's an ongoing question in the field. There's a lot of interest in developing biomarkers. And, you know, we can think about biomarkers as sort of like a molecular biomarker. So something your doctor is measuring in the blood that says this person's not getting enough sleep. It could be like a wearable device, something like a Fitbit that says you're getting less than seven hours of sleep per night. Uh, so there's, you know, there's many ways. I'm doing some work. Uh, this is kind of a side note, but, you know, I'm doing some work looking at developing biomarkers in the blood. So we're measuring thousands of metabolites in the blood and trying to see if we can differentiate people based on these metabolites between adequate and insufficient sleep. And, you know, as that develops, that could potentially be one way of identifying people who might be getting short sleep duration. Obviously, there's a large portion of the population that's, you know, has a wearable device that in one way or another tracks their sleep. And really, the technology on these wearable devices is expanding so rapidly. You know, there, there are limitations to them now, but, you know, I can imagine in five to 10 years from now, as that technology continues to progress, I do think the capacity to use these in sort of more clinical settings is probably progressing. And as probably many listeners are aware and already do, like wearables like restectigraphy are already used in the clinic uh, in some cases. So I, th I think there's a lot of opportunity there to sort of use these as biomarkers to identify who could benefit. So you said something about how you would dis sort of separate them, the people who had insufficient sleep versus adequate sleep. Is that based on seven hours or is that based on their sort of specific profile, depending on their symptoms? You know, because what I'm thinking about is what happens if you have a short sleeper just kind of tossed in there? <laughs> and how does that Pretty impact right. the results? Totally. And that's, you know, I think that's that's a tricky, a tricky question. Uh, a lot of the work. So initially, if we go back to those laboratory sleep restriction studies, those are all people who report getting seven to nine hours of sleep is kind of typically the range most labs use for that. They don't have sleep disorders. They're like perfectly healthy young adults. And so they, and they seem to function very well on getting that, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep per night. And very consistently when we restrict those people's sleep down to less than seven hours, we can start to measure a lot of things that go haywire in their physiology, you know, from their cognition to their cardiometabolic risk profiles. Uh, that's a very different population than, yeah. you know, folks who might be otherwise healthy, but they're functioning 
perfectly fine or seemingly fine on six hours of sleep per night. Uh, so I'm doing, I have one of my ongoing studies, which we haven't published yet, but we're getting close. So I, I have to be a little bit careful. We're, we're recruiting <laughs> exactly. They're healthy young adults who get less than six and a half hours of sleep per night, but they're otherwise healthy. They don't have sleep disorders. They don't have overweight or obesity. Their cardiometabolic risk profiles are very healthy. And it's what I can say is we're doing sleep extension in these people for four weeks and we're achieving between you know, is what we're seeing for our range right now is we're getting them to sleep between 30, 30 minutes per night to up to two hours per night more on average. So they have the capacity to sleep more. Uh, so it'll be really interesting if we see any improvements uh, in, in the cardiometabolic risk profiles of these people. And I think maybe, you know, to get back to your question, the biomarker field isn't quite there yet, but that's a really important thing. Like is six hours of sleep enough for one person, but not enough for another? And can we develop perhaps like a molecular signature that can disentangle that for us? Because that'll be really important if we're thinking about like wide scale implementation of such interventions that we've alluded to. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about sleep and circadian misalignment. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Prepare for the future of sleep medicine at Sleep Medicine Disruptors 2023, November 3rd through 4th. This hybrid course will provide a unique and virtual learning experience, exploring the disruptive innovations altering the healthcare and sleep medicine landscape. Registrants can attend either virtually or in person at the Amesville Hotel in Silicon Valley, California. Register today at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Deppner about insufficient sleep and circadian disruption. So let's talk about the circadian clock. So tell me about central receptors and peripheral receptors. So humans and really all, all animals have a circadian clock and really all plants have circadian clocks. Uh, so nearly like every living thing on earth has a circadian clock. Um, and so humans, the circadian system's organized. So there's a central circadian clock in our suprachiasmatic nucleus in our brain. And that is primarily drained by the timing of light exposure. So there's, you know, essentially there's receptors in our eyes, the melanopsin receptors that have direct neuronal links to the hypothalamus and to our central clock. And so that's very much entrained by the timing of light exposure. And so when we rapidly shift our timing of light exposure, like traveling from the United States to Europe on a plane, uh, you know, that rapid shift, it'll take, you know, up to five to seven days for our circadian clock to adjust to that new light exposure schedule. And that's, you know, that that intervening time when we're adjusting and we don't feel super great and we're trying to go around and, you know, do whatever on our vacation and whatnot. That jet lag that we feel is the time frame that it's taking our clocks, clocks to adjust. So in addition to that central clock, pretty much every cell in our body also has a molecular clock that has about a 24-hour rhythm. We measure these by looking at the gene expression of the clock proteins. And so we know that those have, that's you know how we can say that has about a 24-hour period or rhythm to it. And so these peripheral clocks, they're partly entrained by our central clock, but a lot of them are entrained by our sort of behaviors to have 24-hour patterns. So things huh. like when we eat our food, when we're physically active, when we're not active. And, and so you can imagine those things also tend to have 24-hour patterns to them. And so they can entrain things like our liver clocks and our adipose clocks and our muscle clocks. Okay, so hang on. So 
So adipose clock and liver clock, are those entrained by food, I'm guessing then? Right. So primarily, you know, especially evidence from animal studies would suggest that those are strongly entrained by the time that we eat food. And, you know, I mean, if you sort of just think about it physiologically, it kind of makes sense. Like the adipose tissue is important for storing excess calories and the liver pretty much processes all of our calories. And so they're very tightly sort of entrained to when those calories are coming on board. And then muscle would be activity then. Right. So, I mean, huh. kind of along the same logic, exactly. So what happens then if you go from being like a shift worker, like a day shift, and then you're on call, let's say, at night? Right. So that's that starts to get tricky. But ultimately, you can start to imagine that you know, your your light schedule, so your exposure to lighting might shift around when you sort of go from the day shift to the night shift. And the timing of food intake might also change and likely, you know, pending your job, even the time of physical activity. And that, that could just be simply being physically active. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're like running a marathon, but just oh, simply okay. walking around and, you know, moving about your world. So all of those things could could invert. And so we know, again, this is data really from animal studies, but the timing of sort of when all of those clocks adjust to these different light exposures and behaviors, some of them adjust really quickly and others adjust slowly. And so that's kind of might be what's going on during jet lag is all of these things are adjusting at different oh. rates. And so that gets really hard for shift workers. If you're going back and forth and back and forth, you know, some things might be adjusting to two days of shift work, whereas other things might be taking several more days. And so all these clocks are kind of internally becoming misaligned with each other. And we think that that sort of internal misalignment between all these clocks is one of the issues contributing to those health risks that we've been alluding to. No way. Okay. So, okay. So when we have night shift workers, we usually ask them to, you know, wear sunglasses when they come home and, you know, we're careful about their light exposure. So should now we be telling them to like wake up and eat during the day? If we can. So like logistics aside, if we, (laughs) (laughs) this might be a challenge, but logistics aside, if we have people, shift workers, eat on a consistent, uh, a consistent schedule, so maybe an eight-hour or ten-hour window during the typical daytime, regardless of when they're doing their shift work, uh, there's there's a strong likelihood that that's going to decrease their risk for these chronic diseases. And so there's work, uh, huh. there's recent work from Frank Shear's lab at Harvard where they've sort of done some simulated shift work, but they kept the timing of food intake in the lab uh, consistent to the daytime hours. And they saw some really strong benefits, potentially reducing risk of diabetes in those participants. And so potentially, if you can sort of maintain that consistent eating schedule, that might go a long ways in reducing your, your risk for some of these diseases. Okay, so help me wrap my brain around this. So we ask them to eat during the sort of typical day. Do we, so then are we asking them to eat in the dark? Ultimately, if if it's like they're getting ready to sleep or they've just woken up and they're maintaining that darkness because they're, you know, it's a couple hours till they start their shift work or something like that. So, that's, so it's a time, it's the normal day, but they're maintaining darkness in their home environment because that helps them 
eating in dim light would would be the recommendation huh. um, potentially still to maintain that consistent timing of food intake. You know, that's and so in, in Frank's work is what they did is uh, they restricted all the groups down to a similar amount of sleep duration and they woke them up regardless if they were sleeping in the middle of the night or the middle of the day. They woke them up in the middle of their sleep opportunity to have a meal to either maintain that timing of food intake to whatever sort of either daytime or nighttime phase had them on. And so they were disrupting their sleep a little bit. But even with that minor sort of disruption in their sleep, keeping their food timing consistent did have metabolic health benefits. No and so way. That, that was done. So we could definitely do this in the laboratory relatively easily when we're controlling everything uh, about people's 24-hour days. There's definitely going to be some challenges as we start to think about translating this into real-world shift workers who, you know, kind of as you're learning to, are going back and forth between sort of their normal lives and working the shift work. And they might not have as precise control over when they're exposed to light. Uh, and so I do know there is there's some work going on in different labs around the world looking at trying to trying to implement these types of interventions in real world shift workers. The data is definitely still out on like the best strategies, but I do think there's there's hopefully going to be some promising things coming down the pipeline that that might have some big health benefits. Okay, so that's really interesting, and and this gets back to then synchronizing the central and peripheral clocks, right? Totally. So. Huh. Yeah. So if we go back to this is inner, I'm going to take it all the way back to the sleep restriction stuff, because we yeah. said when when we restrict people's sleep in the lab, we also cause a shift in their clock. And this shift in the clock is contributing to their uh, risk for type 2 diabetes. And so there's one early study that's been published where they did sleep restriction, but they did it in dim light. So people were they were in complete darkness, but very dim light. And that avoided that shift in the circadian clock. Okay. And that avoided then the the appearance and the oh, insulin no sensitivity. Yeah. So there there's some benefit there. Even though they're they were sleep restricted, by avoiding that shift in the circadian clock, it avoided uh those negative health outcomes that we've seen in a lot of studies. So there might be some benefit in this, you know, not only huh. for shift workers, but just for pretty much everybody in the world. So when we talk about all this data on insufficient sleep, could it truly then more be about the shift in circadian rhythm rather than the insufficient sleep itself? It very likely could. Huh. There's uh, there's early work, like I said, that you know, there's only a couple of publications, but they are hinting that a large majority of sort of this cardiometabolic risk that we're, we're observing is perhaps due to kind of the shift in the circadian timing and so disentangling that, you know, like I said, we could do that in the laboratory, which is really important. So if we can determine, is it the shift in the timing of food intake? Is it the shift in the light exposure that's really driving this? Then, you know, that can really guide the design of the interventions. And do we really need to focus? You know, maybe we don't need to focus so much on sleep and an intervention could be very circadian oriented. And that might have great health benefits. And so I know there's there's some work going on in that area. I can't say it's this far too early to say that that is the case, but uh, there's enough evidence that, you know, there's a lot of studies occurring now in that area. So you mentioned allowing people to have sort of this, if I'm understanding you right, to have this sort of window of time where they could eat during their day when they are a night shift worker, like sort of the opposite, right? Like they would still maintain 
eating during the day, even though they work at night and you would have them sort of in dim light, but in a certain time period. So like, what does, like, what's an ideal time then? Like, is it, are we talking about like breakfast, lunch, dinner? Are we talking about like one meal? What does that look like? Right. So there are a lot of options. There's an endless amount of options for sort of the <laughs> timing of food intake, which uh, yeah, I guess keeps us keeps us in business from the research side, really disentangling <laughs> this. But I think probably the best data right now, if we look at some of the time restricted eating studies, which is basically, you know, restricting people's food intake to a six hour window or an eight hour window and sort of trying to identify what that optimal window is. These, these aren't shift work studies per se, but mm -hmm. as what we're seeing is typically the studies where they adhere to a six hour window and they call it early time restricted eating. So it's gonna be in the early morning hours. Uh, typically these windows might be like 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., something like that. And so that means that there's, uh, it's kind of an extended overnight fasting fasting duration because you're getting all of your food in kind of the first portion of your day. And we do see the most health benefits from these sort of early time-restricted eating windows compared to like a late time-restricted eating window where you would also adhere to six hours of an eating window, but it might be much later in the day, like we could say 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. And so we've seen some benefits for weight loss trials with this early time-restricted eating, some benefits on glucose metabolism. And so Courtney Peterson, I know she has some work going on where she's trying to do these types of studies in people with type 2 diabetes and some other interventions. I know some people are trying to do this with shift workers. And so I think it'll be interesting to see if if this really pans out where in these large randomized clinical trials, if it's this early time restricted eating window that kind of produces the best benefit. Um, but that's, that's kind of where the data is hinting now that that's going to be the best. So do you think that would be a consistent window, even if you were a night shift worker? So that's that's really tricky because the, these studies that exist now are, like I said, not on night shift workers. They're yeah. on day shift workers or even retired people. And so when we start to think about night shift workers, their circadian phase typically could be a little bit delayed or a little bit time later compared to the people who are not shift workers. Uh, that's going to be a little bit dependent, though, on what actual shift they're working and if they're consistent night shift or rotating shift work, things like that. So there's a lot of sort of moving factors there. If we, you know, one thing we can do is think about tying this back into some of the biomarker work. So not only think about biomarkers for, uh, you know, sleep duration, if people are getting adequate versus insufficient sleep, we can think about developing biomarkers for circadian timing. Mm. And that might really be a very nice opportunity for shift workers because, if we can then you know, measure something in the blood or even better, maybe easier for them, if there's a wearable that can very precisely identify their circadian timing in real time, they could then sort of base their food intake window on their individual circadian timing, which I think has a lot more benefit for being sort of beneficial from a risk profile for these cardiometabolic diseases rather than kind of playing the guessing game like, all shift workers should eat during right. this window, which I and mean, that's just not going to work. So I think I think these biomarkers are going to be important there too. Well, and I think and I like the idea of it, it because it kind of brings us back to personalized medicine, then, right? Like you kind of look at your wearable data and then maybe a biomarker and come up with you know how you want to time whatever you're doing during the day. 
Exactly. And, you know, we can think about, you know, theory of these wearables could tell us each individual person, like what their actual sort of like biological day is a little bit, regardless of what sort of sunrise and sunset is. And I know that there's work and we're making progress again, like a, a very forward looking, I feel like, but uh, you know, there's even some of these apps, people, people have been happy with these apps that kind of predict when you should be exposing yourself to light and food intake to minimize your jet lag. I mean, it's kind of anecdotal, but people do feel like they work. There's molecular biomarkers that are showing more and more promise for measuring people's timing of their central circadian clock. And I know there's a lot of progress with wearables to be able to predict circadian timing. It's not quite there yet, but I think as, as progress happens in that sort of biomarker development space, we'll be able to start to test, like, can we use the biomarker to say when each individual person should be eating? And I think that the possibility there is really exciting. I mean, it's kind of fascinating. I feel like you've given, you know, given us a, a couple more tools, right, when we're trying to help with our night shift workers. And, and maybe it is sort of having a conversation around when do they exercise and, and when do they eat and maybe not as prescriptive of like wake up at 10 and go eat something, right? But maybe maybe just that messaging of whatever it is, have it be consistent. Totally. And it's kind of like, you know, think about the constellation of like, what you're doing across the 24 hour day and all this, how all this fits together. And I think consistency is you know, going to be one of the key, key messages that, that comes out. So consistency and light exposure, food intake, physical activity, and, you know, your sleep wake schedule as much as you can. Well, I would totally hang out in your lab if you let me sleep like 14 to 16 hours. I would totally be up for that. <laughs> but not the four-hour one. You right. can get me out of that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's always, uh, it's always sort of a crapshoot. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, definitely. I'll come sleep in your lab for like nine hours a day and get free food. No problem. Like, <laughs> you have an equal chance of getting four hours time in bed. So, yeah, you got to roll the dice on that one. So any final thoughts? Um, you know, I can I can say one thing that was really exciting work I did back with Ken Wright at the University of Colorado. We did one really cool study where we randomized people to insufficient sleep with weekend recovery sleep or without weekend recovery sleep. Okay. And so it's what we found is that the folks who got the weekend of recovery sleep, they rated feeling better. They said they felt more alert. Uh, they felt, you know, like they felt more restored after the weekend. But when we analyzed their physiology during sort of that Monday and Tuesday after the weekend, they still had that impaired insulin sensitivity. Their circadian clock was still delayed. And so even though they did get more sleep over the weekend, it didn't really benefit them from a physiological point of view from the parameters we measured, which was really cardiometabolic risk profiles. And so it looks like getting just simply a weekend of recovery sleep is probably not going to be enough. And so that kind of goes back to the consistency of maintaining mm -hmm. that consistent sleep schedule when possible. But, you know, that's all, it's always people are really interested in sort of that question. Like, can, can I just catch up on the weekend? And so the data to date doesn't really look like you can. Huh. So Doug told me about a study that was done in Colorado where you took a bunch of like delayed sleep phase people, and then you let them go camping so they could entrain <laughs> sort of natural light dark and no screens. And then they yes. all entrain to like a daytime sleep schedule. Like that is super cool. 
It was really fascinating. And so we did it two times. We did it over uh, the summer solstice and over the winter solstice. And so like totally, not totally, but very dramatic different differences in the amount of sunlight. And under both circumstances, we saw that people between, you know, like five to seven days of this camping and trained to essentially sunrise and sunset. So um, yeah, it was, it was super, super cool. So that actually gives me hope. I have I have a little delayed sleep phase and my friends okay. make fun of me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, now I'm, so now I'm like, well, maybe I should just go camping for a week and totally. kind of like fix my schedule. Yes. <laughs> and in one of the studies we did, we also did, we did one more. It was just a weekend of camping. Mm. And we saw like 60% of the effect over a weekend. So like 60% of the benefit. And then we also had a group that just like, we just monitored what happened over the weekend and they, we told them just like, do your normal stuff over the weekend and they weren't camping. And there was actually a bit of a delay in their circadian clock after the weekend. So um, yeah, it was, it was really intriguing. I know Ken actually at the University of Colorado, he's doing kind of a follow-up study to that, trying to like emulate it in people's home environment to see if he can sort of do that without taking people camping. That's awesome. So thank you for joining us today and helping us understand how to potentially reduce cardiometabolic risk by assessing both insufficient sleep and circadian misalignment. For sure. Yeah, it was really great to chat. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service, And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.